Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, I pray that you'd help us to understand what we're reading and what we're looking at today. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help me to communicate it in a way that glorifies and honors you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, 2 Kings chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1. This morning we are moving into the second section of the really one unit. There, when we think about 1 Kings and 2 Kings, I was looking this up, and it's interesting. The resource I came across says First and Second Kings were originally one book called in the Hebrew text Kings. And so when we look at this division between First and Second Kings, it was the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, so again, don't let that throw you. You've got Greek-speaking people, and they need a translation of the Old Testament. And so now the Septuagint translates that into a language they could read. And when the Septuagint came along, basically it was divided into two books. And then after that, later on in church history, you've got the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate made it 1 Kings, 2 Kings. But this is really one unified whole. And so today we continue on in our journey of the kings. And we're looking at 2 Kings chapter 1. The title of our message today is a snapshot of the world we live in. A snapshot of the world we live in. I, um, I was at a conference in May of this year, of last year, in Ohio, and I heard a guy from Australia, a guy by the name of Dr. John Woodhouse. I'd never heard of the man. He was a brilliant, brilliant pastor, older gentleman, and, and I heard him preach uh, a series of messages out of Second Kings. And really, like, being at that conference, listening to him, it really uh, compelled me to, to preach out of Second Kings. And as I began to consider preaching out of Second Kings, I thought, why don't we just start in First Kings? And so, um, really intimidated to jump into the Old Testament narrative and and like many places, one where you wish you could start over when you're done with the series and redo it because you see how you wish you would have done it. But all that to say, I, I heard him preach from this text, and it had a profound impact on me. And so many of the thoughts that I share with you today, I, I learned from him. And so uh, if you're interested in listening to the message he preached at Basics Conference, I'll be glad to pass it along to you, and you'll see what I'm saying. But, but one thing that he did that I think is appropriate I want us to start today in Romans chapter 1, and I want us to read a few verses from Romans 1, and I think it will help us to better understand what we're going to be looking at in 2 Kings chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, I want us to read a few verses, and, and it will give us a snapshot of the world, and, and what we're going to see is the way that the world reacts to their greatest problems the way the world reacts to their greatest need. In Romans 1.16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God. 
is revealed from, from, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. We're going to see this morning in a snapshot of King Ahaziah, a snapshot really of how the world responds. What we're going to see is that when we are confronted with our greatest need, Rather than turn to God, we turn to so many different things. It's true in the days of Israel with King Ahaziah, and it's true in the world we live in today. I'll tell you, if the last two to three years hasn't been a tumultuous time in our world where people were faced with panic, and they were faced with fears, and they were faced with the problems of humanity isn't it baffling that so many have turned to different answers, but they've turned not towards God, but they've turned away from Him. They've turned to other gods. They've turned to pleasure. In some situations, they've turned to mediums or the occult. They've turned to science or academia. They've turned to wealth, just to name a few. Let's look at the story of King Ahaziah. As we've been doing, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this in a series of scenes. We're going to move quick through five different scenes in the narrative that only covers 18 verses. Scene one is the accident. The accident. It's a major accident. Here is a man that was the son of King Ahab. Ahab has been dominating the last seven chapters that we've looked at in 1 Kings. Ahab is a notorious figure. You remember his wife is named Jezebel. And this is really, truly a, uh, a tough family to be born into. You've got a mom and a dad that are truly crazy and truly don't believe in the Lord God and the way they live. And so here we have a guy that is now on the scene. We'll see it in verse 2, but look at verse 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now, I want to give you, a, a, I'm going to show you a map. Hopefully, it'll be big enough for you to look at. It's not, but just imagine it is. The, uh, okay, so when you look at a map of Israel, this is, hopefully this will help you. This is, uh, my brain resonates with those books that say, like, you know, Israel for dummies. I always buy those. The, uh, I like those books. But if you look at the water, when you look at Israel, there's water at the north. It's the Galilee. And there's water that connects the Galilee all the way to the Dead Sea. That's the Jordan River. 
And if you go down to the Dead Sea, that long, narrow body of water, to the right or to the east, you see Moab. To the west and towards the Mediterranean, you see an area on the coastland called Philistia. And if you look underneath the top up there at Israel, you see to the left or to the west, you see an area called Samaria. Now, the king Ahaziah in the palace was in Samaria. And today we're going to see references to Moab. We're going to see references to Philistia. And we're going to be reminded of Samaria. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Moab basically is the land that we look at today in our maps and call it Jordan. Jordan is the area of Moab. So when we look at this map, we see that Moab rebelled against Israel. Moab rebels against Israel. And now in verse 2, we see a very unfortunate situation. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. Here's Ahaziah. He's the eighth king of Israel. He is notorious because he's following after the ways of his daddy. And, and you remember Ahab was a follower of pagan deities, and we read about Baal. We read about the prophets in 1 Kings 18, and we read about that scene between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Ahab and how God sent fire down to show that he was God. And, and one thing that's really, really interesting here is we read in verse 2, he falls he tells them to go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Ekron is in Philistia. So when we looked at that map and we looked at that little area by the Mediterranean, now think about it. What's the history? If you, if you just know brief uh, Old Testament history, what was the god that uh, Goliath represented? I mean, we're talking about he was from the Philistines, right? Philistia. So, so any, uh, I mean, we're talking about King David in the time of David and Goliath. So if you go back and we look at the, when the country was unified, we had the first three kings of the, of the, of the nation were Saul, David, and Solomon. And then it was Solomon and, and, and how he began to veer towards really a strange approach. And he sadly pursued women and he pursued all these relationships that brought him uh, compromise in his life, and then the nation split, and what was unified as one split, and there was Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and now the guy that we're looking at today, he's the eighth king in, thank you, <laughs> she's looking out for me, thank you, and the eighth king is all the way down now to Ahaziah. The eighth king is an ungodly king. And he's going after the Philistian gods. He's going after Baal. It's such a sad, sad situation. It's bizarre because he's telling the, the messengers to go to Ekron. If you remember a little bit of the history, his dad, Ahab, because he was trying to pacify his mother, Jezebel, built a temple in Samaria for Baal. It's very fascinating. Why would he need to go 40 miles to the southwest? to go to Ekron, 
if he believes that Beelzebub can help him when he has a temple shrine right there in Samaria. All these things are starting to unfold here. And, and we get into this, and I want you to notice, um, he, according to 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 26, Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign. 22 years old. He's in the prime of his life. He's young. When I was 22, I thought I knew everything in the world. Um, learned quickly. I didn't. But you can relate if you're not 22. Uh, you can relate if you're older than 22, how you feel at 22. Here's a guy that has everything in front of him. He's got power. He's in the prime of life. And he has an accident. And the accident is going to take him literally to his deathbed. One of the realities that we get right off the bat is that one of the deceptions of sin is thinking that we are immortal. And, and, and you know, I think one thing that captivated the country this week and, and wasn't just an amazing answer to prayer when this guy for the Buffalo Bills, the Hamlin fella, DeMar Hamlin gets hurt and just shook up the whole country with this young man laying there helpless and thinking that he might have passed. And what, what answers to prayer? But I think one of the realities is that when everybody's looking at these incredible athletes and they think of the prospect of a 24-year-old young man laying there helpless on a field, it's not the way things typically go. And it's scary. I told you about my friend last week who died. I was reading... Um, I, you know, I was reading about Georgia football. It's a shocking that I would do that. And, and, and I read something that uh, was sobering. There was a guy who had tickets to go to Los Angeles for the game tomorrow night. And they said he had just built his dream house in his mid-40s near Stone Mountain. Oh, no, actually on Lake Oconee. And uh, he had a massive heart attack, died. Had tickets to the game. Was about to move his family into his new home on the lake. Everything's in front of him not a thought of mortality. And yet, what do we think of here is one of the reminders immediately is we're going to look at a story that involves a young man who passes away. So one of the temptations to our younger crowd is to think, you know what, I'll worry about these types of issues when I get older. But the Bible teaches us that we have to approach life understanding God has numbered our days and we can't guarantee our next breath. We have to look at life very serious and, and understand the implications. And so here is this story beginning to unfold, and it's really tragic because what we're going to see in the unfolding verses is that here is a man who is the king of Israel, and in his great time of need, he doesn't look to the God of Abraham. He doesn't look to the God of Isaac. He doesn't look to the God of Jacob. He neglects everything about who God is. And, and who is God? What we've learned in 1 Kings is that he's the God who brought drought. What we learned in 1 Kings is that he's the God who fed Elijah. He's the God who did a miracle with the widow of Zarephath. He even raised her son from the dead. And then, and, and what sits in the background of this story, uh, when Stan read you the passage earlier, he read out of 1 Kings 18. You might have thought, wait a minute, we've already looked at that passage. But I wanted you to think about it because here is the tragedy. 
we are looking at a king of Israel who has a father who encountered the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel where God demonstrated that he was the only true God. And 450 prophets of the pagan deity were destroyed. And now in his time of need, rather than humble himself before the God of Israel, he rejects him. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. He runs after Baal. You remember that passage, Stan read it, but look at it again. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And King Ahaziah, the eighth king of Israel, he surmised in his mind and in his wisdom as king that Baal was God and he would follow after Baal. That's the tragedy that's setting up a man who now has followed through. They would have these like uh, areas on top of their roof. Imagine a flat roof. And imagine on a flat roof, almost like we would look at it as like a deck on the top floor. And, and a lot of it falls through a lattice or leans on it, falls presumably off of the top of the dwelling all the way to the bottom. And now he's in bad shape. He's in his bed and he's calling out for Baal. Belzebub is what he calls out to. And there's a little bit of debate. Belzebub is the fly lord. The fly lord. Like swatting a fly. The god of the flies. This name was given to the god because he was supposed to be able to avert the plague of flies. But some people believe it's a play on words. That, that the term Belzebub instead of Belzebul would be a insult. Insult. It would be like, instead of the exalted Baal, it would be the Lord of the flies. Regardless of what the intention of the term is, you see the tragedy begin to unfold. The second scene is the confrontation. What happens is he sends his messengers, but as we've learned in the story of the kings, God has his people. He has his messengers. And his messenger now is sent. And the angel of the Lord, in verse 3, said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now, I want you to notice that question and how tragically sad it is. Notice it. Is it because... There is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron. I remember back in 1 Kings, our, our looking, looking into some cross-references, I was reminded of, is what I should have said, 1 Kings 18.36, at the time of the offering of this oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God, this is back at Mount Carmel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. And God demonstrated he was God. And now Ahaziah acts as if there is no God in Israel. You look in the Old Testament, 
And the prophet Jeremiah has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. When Jonah was prophesying of the coming doom the Assyrians would bring to the northern kingdom, later than this, in Jonah, Jonah says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And here we are. This is where they've come to. In verse 4, in light of what he's done and in light of how Ahaziah has sought after Ekron and Beelzebub, it says, Now therefore thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. So this is what he's supposed to say. He's supposed to go. He's supposed to meet the messengers. And now it says in verse 4, he went. In verse 5, let's read that. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, why have you returned? It's a 40-mile journey. And so they come back because they ran into Elijah. In verse 6, they said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there's no God in Israel? that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Here's what you'll notice. That question is posed not only in verse 3, but in verse 6 and in verse 16. It becomes really the background of this chapter. It's the idea, again, is it because there is no god in Israel? And, And here what happens is, he says that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. The messengers received the message from Elijah. They report it back to the king. And now verse 7, he said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with the belt of leather about his waist. Wouldn't you like to have seen Elijah? Interesting fellow, right? And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. It's so sad because Elijah was used by God to graciously point out. Remember the story after God had sent fire down, after Elijah had gone down to the foot of the mountain and had destroyed the prophets, the false prophets, And remember as Ahab gets in his chariot and he heads back to Jezreel. And remember as he's going back to Jezreel, what happened? God came on Elijah and he ran ahead of the chariot. And story after story after story. Imagine that here's a man that I would say you would have to speculate almost had to be familiar with the stories of how God had worked through this prophet. How God had raised up the widow's son. And now on his deathbed, you would think he'd be like, hey, does anybody know where Elijah is? I know God has used him to raise up those who had no hope. Maybe the God of Israel would have mercy on me. I know that the God of Israel showed himself powerful on Mount Carmel 
Maybe now in my time of need, he's revealing himself to my heart. But in his time of need, he turned away and rejected the God of Israel. And he literally thought that Beelzebub would be the one who could provide what he needed. Scene three, Ahab sends his captains. You get a sense that he knew immediately when they described the tone of the meeting Along the way that the messengers ran into this man, you begin to wonder and speculate, did he know, aha, it had to be Elijah? And his question and their answer confirmed his thoughts. But in scene three, we see in verse nine, then the king sent him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill. Now, this is bizarre because now God has revealed to him what's going to happen. And, and rather than seek out Elijah that he might repent. And if you remember, the scripture is clear that for a season, his father had repented. And, 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 and rather than, than seek that out, he, he doubles down and he sends force. He sends a platoon. He sends a captain with 50 other men. And the thought here that we wonder is, is he going to try to kill Elijah? Is he going to try to take him captive? Is he going to try to manipulate his words? Is he going to try to threaten him so that he'll change his message? What is the goal here? And why is he sending 50 men? Because earlier he had to have known what took place at Mount Carmel. Now, some speculate and it's fun to speculate this. I can't prove it. But some speculate that when he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, that he went, they went up to Elijah, the captain, and his 50 at the foot of Mount Carmel. Wouldn't that be interesting? We can't prove it. But it's interesting because as we will see in the text, not only did fire come down at Carmel, Fire comes down in judgment upon the first two captains and their platoon of 50. So we don't know for sure. It's an interesting speculation. He comes up, the captain, what does he say? He said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. Come down. Now, now at this point, we've already seen Elijah reveal what is going to take place. Yet, again, there, there's a complete lack of any type of humility or any type of obedience to the declaration and revelation of God. Woodhouse quotes Matthew Henry here, and, and I found this quote after he mentioned it, wanted to go back and look for it, and listen to what he said. He said, it was not long since Elijah had fetched fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice in token of God's acceptance of that sacrifice as an atonement for the sins of the people. But they having slighted that, now the fire falls, not on the sacrifice, but on the sinners themselves. Fire in 1 Kings 18 that fell on the sacrifice, and now we see an example in the Scripture of the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And we see here the holiness of God on display. Now, to understand this, go back to 1 Kings, the last chapter. The 1 Kings, the last chapter. 
And we're going to look at this because to understand what is happening, remember in the last three verses of 1 Kings 22, we see exactly what's happening. We read in verse 51, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. He reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshiped him. Now notice, and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel to what? to anger in every way that his father had done. Again, we, we need to emphasize the characteristics of God, his, his holiness, his love, but we have to be careful that we don't neglect his wrath, his anger. He's holy. He can't look upon sin. And so if we don't understand that, we'll never really understand the need of the cross. But, but what we see here is now in what unfolds, Elijah says something shocking, verse 10. But Elijah, now we're back in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 10. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Their lives were taken. What, what sobering words. In verse 10, what's the response? Repentance and humility and sackcloth and ashes from King Ahaziah? Nope. Let's try it again. Verse 11, again, the king sent him another captain of 50 men with his 50, and he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. I didn't catch this the first time, and I didn't catch it until I read in another reference, and I had to go back and double check it. Did you notice the difference in what was said in verse 11 from the previous encounter of the captain and his 50? The second captain gets a little more forceful than the first captain. And he says this. He says, oh, man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. 51 men had just been engulfed by fire and now they're coming back and saying, the king orders you to come down. And sadly, what happens here, again, is tragic. Verse 12, but Elijah answered them, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Now we're 102 men into this, and 102 men have been judged by the wrath of God, and they are dead. 51 with the first captain, including the captain. 51 with the including the second captain. Scene four, a plea for mercy. The third captain, by the grace of God, seeks to take a different route. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50, and the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees. Different approach. He comes in on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O oh man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. He pleads for mercy. 
He pleads for mercy and he receives mercy. And when we get into the next part here, we go to scene five. We see now a message of judgment. And in verse 15, notice how the angel of the Lord now says to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to acquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Again, third time, third question. Is it because there's no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Verse 17, so he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no Son. Wow, it's in fulfillment of what Elijah had already said would happen to Ahab. When I, when I heard Dr. Woodhouse speak on this passage, one of the points he made that really made an impression on me is how he linked this story in 2 Kings chapter 1 with the very principle of Romans 1 of people that suppress the truth in unrighteousness rather than look to God and trust in Him. When we look at 2 Kings chapter 1, we're looking at a microcosm of the world. What do we do in times of trouble? What do we do when we recognize how frail we are? What do we do when within a month of the pandemic and not knowing where it's headed, we see Italy in situations of people dying all over the globe. What do we do? Do we turn to God or do we turn to other places? The pandemic's just one example of many, but what we find is over and over in the course of this world when people are left to their greatest need rather than submit and repent and look to Christ, what do they do? They turn other places. This morning... I want to look at four urgent responses to avoid the fate of Ahaziah. Four urgent responses, because here's where we are. If we leave right now, we've learned a lot of facts about the king of Israel and the history of Israel, but it may not even touch our heart. The first response that, that I would challenge you to consider here is we learn here. So the first one, recognize the heart of man. Recognize the heart of man. Recognize the heart of man. Man is not neutral. Man is not in a state of eh, morally neutral. I'll figure this out. I'll observe all the data. I'll consider what I need to consider. We learn that there's a problem going on here, a problem that we see revealed here, that, that apart from God's grace, man is depraved, born into sin, rather than worship God, worships the creation. And, and here, you know, Romans 1 is primarily a worship issue. It's a worship problem. Rather than worship God, we worship the creation. We see it in the life of Ahaziah, and we see it in the life of the world. 
We see it in our own hearts apart from the grace of God. Romans is clear to this. Recognize the heart of man. I was thinking about Jeremiah. A lot of times, um, man, some, some there's been, you can pray. I mean, because one of the opportunities for ministry at the church is, you know, people that just come off the street. And there's a lot of people in our community that are hurting. And whether they're hurting because of addictions they brought on themselves, whether they're hurting because of legitimate needs, the hurt is real and it's, it's, it's hard not to be overwhelmed by it. A 24, 25-year-old couple, four kids, working fast food, don't barely have the money to keep up, have applications in the Department of Housing, 53rd on the list. In the meantime, they're having to borrow money for hotels. They got little kids, kids that need to eat. They're working every day, but they're only making X amount of dollars. And sometimes when I'm talking to dear people with real situations, and I look at them and I say, hey, if you were to die, if something tragic took place in your life while you are in the middle of a crisis, and maybe you're running across the street because you don't have a car right now, you don't have anyone to drive you. You need rides everywhere you go. Maybe you just didn't look good enough and you ran across the street and you got hit and you got wounded and you died. What would happen? And a lot of these people, in, in the sincerity of their eyes, they look at you and they say, you know what? I know that God knows my heart. God knows my heart. And, and I want to read you a passage because that's the problem. That's the problem. God does know our heart. He knows it in a way that is clearer than we can even perceive. It says in Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then God says in verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God sees our heart. It's deceitful. It's deceptive. It's wicked. And because he's the perfect one who analyzes and detects what's wrong, as a holy God, he brings judgment upon those who have committed acts of treason against him. So we have a massive dilemma, and the dilemma starts with we have to recognize our hearts. Recognize our hearts. And, and that's why, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And, and rather than worship God, we suppress his truth. The second response, not only recognize the heart of man, but second of all, recognize the judgment of God. In Romans it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. When we think of Ahaziah, as uncomfortable as it may be, when we think of this man at 22 years old laying on his bed, laying on his bed facing a death sentence. We have to understand, because we've sinned against a holy God, we face that very condemnation. If we can't see that, we'll never understand the gospel and we'll never understand the problem that exists in the Old and the New Testament, that exists in the world. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, there's judgment. The anger of God was revealed not only towards Ahaziah in his sinfulness who rejected the mercy of God, but it was revealed 
against these messengers, this platoon, these captains who went and in their rebellion against God as his creation and in their disobedience and in their own culpability, they faced the wrath of God. And these examples are not to be neglected by us today, but they're to serve as holy reminders that not only do we have wicked hearts, but we are under the judgment of God apart from his grace. The third reminder, look to God's demonstration and revelation of who he is. I think the tragedy is that King Ahaziah laid on his bed and rather than look to God's demonstration and revelation of who he was and how he'd revealed himself at Mount Carmel, he looked away from it. He looked away from it. I mean, it's right in front of him. It, it's, it serves as a landmark. It, you, you, can't not, you can't not look at a map and, and see the proximity of where he's at in Mount Carmel. But wouldn't it be tragic if you sat here today and learned of a man who looked away from God's revelation and demonstration of his power on Mount Carmel and your response was to look away from another hill, the hill called Calvary? and neglect God's demonstration and revelation of who he is? You see, it's easy to point a finger at Ahaziah, but where he lost hope and where his heart was hardened was when he refused to look at the demonstration and the revelation of who God had shown himself to be. And friend, today, by the grace of God, in 2023, almost said 22, It's going to be hard to write checks this year, isn't it? But we can't neglect how God has demonstrated his love for us. But God demonstrated his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8 says. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I want you to hear this, and I want you to think about this is the heart of the gospel. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Look to the demonstration of God's revelation. Look to the demonstration of who God has shown himself to be. God has brought Christ. Christ, the perfect God-man, has sent by the Father. And he went to the cross. He died on that cross, was buried, and rose again from the dead as a demonstration of the grace and the mercy of God. Fourthly today, the fourth response to avoid the fate of Ahaziah is call out for mercy by grace through faith in Christ alone. I want to ask you a question as we get ready to close this morning. Who do you relate to more this morning? King Ahaziah or the third captain? Which one do you resemble more? You see, Ahaziah, he'd heard it. Can't be a king over Israel without knowing about the troublemakers. He had repudiated everything that was happening in the southern kingdom. In the southern kingdom of Judah, there's only eight 
godly kings throughout the history of the southern kingdom, but in the north where Ahaziah was the eighth king of Israel in the north, there wasn't a godly king at all. He had repudiated it. He had walked away from it. But here is the the hope in this. And I love this because now that we know what's happening in the New Testament, I want you to see the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God this morning. The mercy and the grace and the kindness of God is seen in this third captain. And this third captain, he comes, and in his humility, what does he do? He cries out for mercy. He cries out for mercy. And in his cry out for mercy, here's the beauty of the story. A man that was as guilty as the other prior two captains now received the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God. And friend, today, as we look at this story in 2023, as we jump into a new year, I pray that we would see these connections, that we would recognize our heart apart from grace, that we would recognize the judgment of God, that we would look to God's demonstration of who he is at the cross, and that we would call out for mercy by grace through faith in Christ alone. I pray today that none of us follows the ways of King Ahaziah, but today we see how God has revealed himself in the cross of Jesus Christ. And in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see not only like 2 Corinthians 5.21, but we're reminded of Isaiah 53.6, and I'm going to close with this. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This morning, look to Jesus Christ and live by his. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, as we consider the common ground we share with this third captain, I pray that it would soften our hearts today and it would cause us to be grateful. Lord, even those in this room who know you and have trusted in you, we all have ran after other answers, other avenues, other functional idols, as some refer to them. I thank you for your kindness, God. I thank you, Lord, that it's not of works lest any man should boast. But I thank you, Lord, as we recognize the the great predicament that we are truly in and the depth of our need that we see the glory and the miracle of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. And I pray today, Father, that every person in here would be so moved by your kindness. I pray today, Lord, that if they've never seen it, I pray today they would be captivated by your grace, that they would see that there's hope, that those who trust in Christ 
are declared in right standing with you, not because of their own works, but because of the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus that covers them. I pray that would be a common realization in the room today of all of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If